Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. The Denby House of Cards. Welcome to this bonus episode, originally written for the Patreon feed, and which hopefully tides you over, while I put together the next few scripts of the main narrative. In December 1648, as the new model army and the rump parliament were deciding what to do about the king, a group of peers visited Sir Thomas Fairfax. They arrived at Whitehall Palace and spoke with the army council to try one last time to find a compromise that the king could live with that was also acceptable to the army. The terms they came to were fairly harsh, because the army knew that they had the king over a barrel, and that if they were to give him an inch, there was a very good chance he would go back on his word, reassume his tyrannical powers, and have them all hanged. These last proposals would make Charles essentially powerless. He would become a ceremonial entity, stripped of all but the most minimal royal prerogatives. He would lose his veto, and he would have to call off the Marquis of Ormond, who was busy forging an Irish coalition to invade England. In return for all of this, he would not be put on trial, be deposed, or executed. The Earl of Denby was sent, secretly, to offer these terms to the king. The vote of no addresses had only just been restored, and the army didn't want to be seen violating their own prohibition. Also, to backtrack on their public condemnation of the king without securing a settlement beforehand would fatally wound their political influence. So Denby went to Windsor Castle with a cover story. He was going to visit his brother-in-law, the Marquis of Hamilton. Hamilton was the only other prisoner still held near the king, and the theory was that Denby could see Hamilton and then, while he was there, stop by to see the king. It would just be a spur-of-the-moment thing, definitely not a planned violation of a parliamentary ordinance. So Denby sets out from London, in the meantime, the army council debates and argues, with some calling for the king to go on trial, others still calling for his death, and the rest calling for moderation. One of those last ones was apparently Oliver Cromwell, who urged the rest of the council to wait to decide what to do until they heard the king's reply to the Denby mission. If he accepted them, 
they could spare the king's life. Well, Denby arrived at Windsor, met with his brother-in-law, chatted about family. How are the kids? Oh, you've done very well making your cell look nice. Is that a new bookshelf? That kind of thing. And then Denby slipped out and entered the rooms allocated to the king, and he requested to see the king. When asked what the meeting was for, Denby refused to say. It was meant to be secret, after all. But Charles, either resigned to his fate or annoyed that Denby was bothering him, apparently on a whim, without any real purpose, refused to see him. Other interpretations are that Charles had worked out the reason for Denby's visit, because he'd been expecting another attempt at settlement from the army, but he still turned it away out of a fervent belief in an Irish alliance. From this perspective, refusing to see Denby was another very Charles act of negotiation. He was convinced his enemies still needed him, and as a show of power he rejected them because they'd come crawling back. Whatever the reason, Denby was turned away, and this was the final straw for moderates on the army council and in the rump parliament. The king would be put on trial for his life. That is the story of the Denby mission, and it's a staple of English revolution historiography. It's well regarded by historians of the period, going back to Victorians like Samuel Gardner, and it's still included in narratives by Michael Braddock, Ian Gentles, and Richard Cust. These are texts I've used a lot, and both the authors and their works are very well regarded. It's the final nail in the coffin for Charles's chances, it helps explain the decision to put the king on trial, and it might never have happened. In 2010, Mark Kishlansky published the article Mission Impossible, Charles I, Oliver Cromwell, and the Regicide in the English Historical Review. In this, he argues, in the words of Philip Baker, summarising the importance of this article, that, quote, Scholars erected an elaborate narrative of an attempted settlement on the flimsiest of evidence, end quote, because the Denby mission grew legs. Kishlansky calls it a tale worthy of Paul Bunyan, in that each reproduction, historians have embellished it more and more. The Victorian historian, Gardner, places the events between the 23rd and the 28th of December. Charles got to Windsor on the 23rd, and Gardner presumes that the results of Denby's mission would be known by the 28th, so that timescale made sense to him. Another historian, David Underdown, then ran with these dates and concluded that the Denby mission and the attempted meeting happened on the 25th of December, and later writers have accepted this as fact. Underdown also added another condition to the package brought by Denby. Charles was to, quote, abjure the Scots, and he suggested that the Denby mission was the brainchild of Oliver Cromwell. Gardiner had only considered Cromwell a supporter, so this was a promotion to mastermind. Then, historian John Adamson took up the torch, and he argued that the peers who visited Fairfax did so because they were worried about the Irish invasion. The terms Denby carried grew once more, and now included the condition that Charles abandon any plans for a new war. Adamson is unsure whether Denby and the king did meet, but he comes down firmly that Charles refused to deal, either by avoiding Denby or refusing the offer, and this, quote, foreclosed all options, end quote. Sean Kelsey then takes up the mantle, insisting that the grandees and the leaders of the rump and the lords were keen to give the king one last chance. The preparations undertaken by Parliament to prepare a trial for the king was just, quote, a way of bringing to bear some extra pressure on the king in advance of the Earl of Denby's trip to Windsor, end quote. Kelsey agrees with Gardiner, 
that Denby was never seen by the king when he visited. John Morrill and Philip Baker concur that Cromwell's apparent delay in supporting putting Charles on trial for his life was because he was holding out hope that the Denby mission would succeed. Kishlansky notes all of this, and then returns to the evidence that this whole speculation was built on. The only contemporary sources which mention a Denby mission are two letters from a French statesman in London to Cardinal Mazarin, chief minister of France, and they're very brief and low on details. They're so brief that I'll read the relevant sections in full. The letter sent on the 25th of December reads, quote, I have just been told that the Earl of Denby had gone to make some propositions for an accommodation with the king, but if he grants them, they would so strongly restrain his authority that he would be left only with the title of king, and if he refuses them, his enemies will have grounds for carrying out the violent acts with which they threaten him, end quote. Then, on the 28th of December, quote, The Earl of Denby did indeed go to Windsor, but did not see the king, although that was his intention. He covered it with a plan of going to speak to the Duke of Hamilton, his brother-in-law, in order for it to be believed that the overtures he wanted to make to the king were not premeditated, and for that reason he waited for the king to have him summoned, which he did not want to do, as he had asked without specifying the reason. But although Cromwell wants him to speak of accommodation, it is hard to think that he desires it, and that he has any other intention than to draw from the king declarations he will use afterward either to destroy him or obtain his abdication with even more appearance of justice, and thus be able to say that if one goes to extremes it is only after having pursued all avenues of accommodation, end quote. Kishlansky states, that's it. These are the only two contemporary references to the Earl of Denby attempting to offer the king terms in December 1648. As you might have noticed, there's very little in them to support the embellishments of generations of historians, and it actually says the opposite of some of those embellishments. Kishlansky then questions why these are the only sources we have. He argues that even if this mission was kept very secret, quote, those in the know at Westminster must have comprised a fairly large circle, yet not a peep emerged from any of them, either at the time or subsequently, end quote. He lists those who had to have known something, the king, obviously, and the king's servants who would see Denby waiting, any guards who let Denby in to see Hamilton, the governor of Windsor Castle or his deputies who would have to give permission for Denby to see Hamilton, Hamilton himself, the other peers who approached Fairfax, Fairfax, the rest of the army council, the members of the commons who supported it and were integral to applying pressure for the plan to work, Denby himself, it's a very large amount of people. Added to the fact that later, upon the restoration, it would have been in a lot of these people's interests to tell Charles II that they had been part of a final attempt to save his father's life. Some of them were in danger of losing their own lives, but they never mention it. Kishlansky also points out that the political presses of London were working overtime during December 1648, writing from every political angle, and none of them mention the Denby mission. Kishlansky found no mention of such a proposal in any of the correspondence from royalists during this time, and they included all the latest gossip, hopes and fears for the fate of the king. One final offer, no matter how secret, would surely be included in some of these reports. Other foreign agents, especially the Venetian ambassador, were very well informed and determined to keep their masters fully aware of the goings-on in revolutionary England, and there's nothing about a Denby compromise. 
The only contemporary who mentions it is the French agent, and Kishlansky notes that he was not particularly well informed. Kishlansky compares the substance of those reports with what historians have built on them, and he's not impressed. The only other supporting evidence of substance comes from Marchamont Needham, a propagandist of dubious loyalty to any cause, and Kishlansky more or less dismisses his contributions as tabloid fiction. What was more likely? That the army grandees, their allies in Parliament, and a bunch of peers colluded to draft one final, illegal proposition to the king, contrary to many of their public statements, which was then brought to the threshold of his chambers to be presented to perhaps the most highly guarded person in the entire three kingdoms, all without any of those people involved or who witnessed these events making any surviving record and never mentioning it again, or that a French agent heard a baseless rumour and reported it to his masters in Paris, either because he believed it or because he wanted to be seen as connected and informed. It's almost impossible to prove something didn't happen in history, and future evidence may come to light, but it seems at best very unlikely that the Denby mission happened. So why does this matter? Why did I choose this as a Patreon bonus? Firstly, because it shows how even highly esteemed and talented historians can take things for granted. We stand on the shoulders of giants, and sometimes those giants made mistakes. That's why the field of history is always reconsidering, re-evaluating, and double-checking events and people who, it seems, have had everything that could be written, written. But also, because it reduces Charles's fault for his own trial, at least a little bit. If the Denby mission happened, and it wasn't an elaborate plot by Cromwell to give the army its justification to bring the king to trial, then by refusing to meet with Denby and consider the terms, Charles gave up on his last opportunity to save his crown and his life. In this telling, once again, the stubbornness and fraudulent self-belief of Charles Stuart backfired, and it costs him his head. But if the Denby mission didn't happen, and the evidence doesn't appear to support that it did, then the last chance for Charles to agree to a settlement was in the negotiations for the Treaty of Newport, and he was taking them seriously, and appears to have finally accepted reality and the need for serious compromise, albeit he still hoped to gain the upper hand. The wheels were turning, Parliament was prepared to meet the King in the middle, a settlement was finally on the cards, and that's when the army struck, derailed the process, and purged those in favour of it from the Commons. They did all this because the Newport terms were in danger of being accepted, and the terms were not acceptable to them. And as Kishlansky concludes, quote, There is nothing in the conduct of the officers and soldiers after the 6th of December that should lead us to believe that they preferred a secret deal to a public trial. I have to say, I'm not a historian of this period, in that I've not been to the conferences and followed the historiographical debate. I don't know if there is a new consensus on the Denby mission among historians, or if it's still taken as fact by specialists, or if it's a highly controversial battlefield that I've just cluelessly blundered into. But what I've noticed is that since Kishlansky's article in 2010, references to the Denby mission have dropped off. It still pops up every now and then, usually in broader texts which aren't focused on the ins and outs of these months. But it seems, as a generalist looking in, that Kishlansky managed to convince many of his colleagues. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode. Remember that you can join the mailing list to be notified about new episodes and news about the show by going to the link in the description. For other great podcasts on the Airwave Network, check out airwavemedia.com. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, 
to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.